0: Well, somebody taller than me preached here last week, uh, I'm, I'm definitely feeling that was you. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. I want to talk to you about anticipation. Some of you are anticipating how long this sermon is going to be, given how hot it is in this room, but it's, it's not the anticipation of dread that I want to talk about this morning. Now, I, I want to talk about just how powerful a, a sense of anticipation can be, right? It heightens our senses. It increases our, our longing when, when it's something good that we're anticipating. It it actually, anticipation, even though it can kind of make us all unsettled a little bit, it actually prepares us to really enjoy the satisfaction of that good thing that we are anticipating. It's, it's, it's that feeling that you have, you know, when, when you smell Thanksgiving dinner being prepared, but it's still hours away. Oh, but you begin to Look forward to it. Or, or, or that feeling that you have is as you cross days off your calendars, you're counting down to that Hawaiian vacation that I just returned from. So I'm not anticipating anymore. Now I'm looking backwards with longing. But you, you remember that feeling as vacation draws closer and you just feel it. It's coming. It's coming. Anticipation, this kind of anticipation that I'm talking about, it's the opposite of what you feel at the end of Thanksgiving Day, after you kind of gorged yourself on too much food, right? Or, or, or at that, the end of that vacation, because you've had just a little bit too much fun in the sun. Without anticipation, without, without that sense of, of longing and hungering and looking forward to, to something, boy, life would be dull. But if we're always anticipating, And never satisfied, then life becomes quite miserable. And and it's not just like food or or vacation or 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 sex that you that you're anticipating. No, it's it's like it's all of life, right? We're constantly toggling back and forth, whether it's school or career or the prospect of marriage or, or parenting, we're, we're moving back and forth between anticipating what's coming, looking forward to it. On, on the other hand, though, you know, wanting to, to take satisfaction in what's already come and where we've already been. And yet the fact that we're constantly moving back and forth between these two things lets us know that, wow, it's, it's never enough, is it? Even when what we're anticipating comes The the satisfaction doesn't last. It's never quite enough. Anticipation comes back. We want more. We need more. And it raises the question. Is there anything? Anything at all? that, that, That we could long for? That when it finally comes. Oh, we are satisfied we're able to say this this is enough and i don't need to anticipate anymore that i think is the question that our psalm is asking this morning as we are on this pilgrimage of praise continuing our journey through the psalms of ascent this summer so turn with me if you would to Psalm 123, Psalm 123, it is a very short Psalm, which in the Lord's providence is perfect for today. Let me read it for you, Psalm 123. I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven, like a servant's eyes on his master's hand, like a servant girl's eyes on her mistress's hand, So our eyes are on the Lord, our God, until he shows us favor. Show us favor, Lord. Show us favor, for we've had more than enough contempt. We've had more than enough scorn from the arrogant and contempt from the proud. Like I said, this is a short psalm, only two stanzas, four verses. It is structured in part through repeated words. We've seen this before that work almost like like a staircase leading us upward to its conclusion. So we move from eyes on hands longing for favor. And then this idea of something being more than enough. But the psalm is not just structured in this kind of repeated stair-step fashion, it is really designed to evoke and elicit from the reader a sense of anticipation. Each stanza is, is kind of, even as short as it is, it's, it feels almost, almost needlessly prolonged, dr- drawn out. We, he, he makes us wait for the, the climax of the thought in each stanza. This psalm is a, is a prayer. It's a song asking for favor from the Lord. Why is he praying for favor? Because the psalmist knows that for God's servants, his favor is more than enough. That's, that's really the main idea of this psalm, I think. For God's servants, his favor is more than enough. We're going to look at this in, in two parts, first God's servants and then thinking about God's favor. As we do, I want you to consider whether what you're hungering for today, what, what, what you're longing for, what you are anticipating will really and truly satisfy when it finally comes. All right, so first let's let's consider God's servants, God's servants. Look at that first stanza again, verses one and two. I lift my eyes to you, the one enthroned in heaven, like a servant's eyes on his master's hand, like a servant girl's eyes on her mistress's hand. So our eyes are on the Lord, our God, until he shows us favor. Now, this should remind you of a psalm that we've already seen, Psalm 121 where there also our pilgrim lifted up his eyes. But, but there, uh, the, the servant was lifting up his eyes. The pilgrim was lifting up his eyes to the mountains and he was wondering. He was wondering, where's my help going to come from? And there's no wondering going on here. The pilgrim is lifting his eyes expectantly. His eyes are fixed on the one enthroned in heaven, the one who is sovereign over all of life, and over his own life. And he's looking for something from this sovereign God. What is he expecting? Well, you'd think he'd get right to it. But he makes us wait for it. In, in verse 2, he introduces this kind of long, extended simile that, that keeps the focus actually on him and his companions' rather than on God. We, we keep focusing on the one who is looking up, who is expecting something, and, and he describes them like, like male servants. It's actually plural, even though your translation may have it singular. Male servants watchfully waiting on their master, watching his hand, looking for that, that signal that, that their work is done, that they can go eat now. Or or like a female servant, this time singular, waiting on her mistress, watching her hand, waiting for that signal that the day's work is done and she can go and rest from her labor. You couldn't be more inclusive, male, female, singular, plural. The idea, of course, of this simile is that God's people, all of them, any of them, are his servants. Watchfully. Attentively waiting on him in anticipation. What do you think it means that God is master and you are servant? I think in today's cultural climate, it's easy to misunderstand this image. We immediately want to read it, uh, this, this term servant or, or slave, you could, you could translate it slave, we want to read it against American history and, and the dehumanizing and demeaning treatment that slaves received in the American South. But chattel slavery, the kind of slavery that was going on in America, that, that is not what is in view here. While while a household servant, like these servants, they're being described and they're being compared to us, the people of God. While a household servant certainly did not have complete autonomy over their lives, their freedoms were curtailed. There was nevertheless a significant covenantal relationship between servant and master in the ancient Near East. A servant owed his master loyalty and, and labor. But a master owed something as well. A master owed his servant protection. A master owed his servant provision. There was a a mutual relationship of, of obligation between master and servant in this cultural context. It wasn't equal. But it was real. Abraham and Moses were both called servants of the Lord. Men who were entrusted with much authority and great nobility. The the Levites, those who served in the temple, were known as the servants of the Lord. Here we see all of God's people are identified as servants of the Lord. And what they're waiting for is what he has promised them. Right? What they're waiting for is his favor. Uh, the, the idea here is not like, oh, hey, would you, would you do me a favor? Like, I, I, I need some help moving this weekend. No, that's, that's not the idea. The, the idea is of being inclined towards someone, wanting to be fully committed to their needs and considerate of their lives so that their life is blessed. People balk at the idea of God as master because it implies our obedience to him. We don't like that idea. And, and it's true. That's a true implication. If God is master, we owe him our obedience. But have you ever considered that in being your master, God has committed himself to you? It's not just you committing yourself to him. No, it's him committing himself to you, committing himself to your protection. Committing himself to your provision, committing himself to taking care of you. In this master-servant relationship, the master is very much saying to the servant, yes, you must obey me. But he's also saying You can look to me for everything that you need. You can rely on me. I wonder where you're looking for protection this morning. Where are you looking for provision? The the things that a master owes his servant. Are you looking to your bank account? It's a reasonable place to look for, for provision. Maybe you're looking to the stock market and you're a little disturbed because it dropped this last week, or you're looking to the housing market and you already own a house, so you're really glad that it's crazy right now, or you don't yet own a house and you are despairing. Maybe you're looking to friends or or, or family to be there for you. Maybe you, you, you think that the government is here to protect and to provide, or Or maybe you think that, well, if we just had a better government, then I could trust it to protect and provide. Maybe you're just looking to your own strength, your own ingenuity. You know, at at a certain level, all of those things are fine to look to for protection and provision. But remember, all of those things will fail you. All of those things will prove inadequate at the very end. But the one enthroned in heaven, the one who is sovereign over all, the one who made everything and who made you He will never fail you. I'm stating that as categorically as I know how. And the reason I can be so confident is that he's already proved that he will never fail you. Not only does God commit himself to you as master to servant. But the Lord God has made your greatest problem, your greatest need, his greatest act of favor. You understand that your greatest problem is not outside of you. It's not your need for more money. It, it, it's not your need for a spouse or more friends. It's, it's not your need for more space at home or a new HVAC system. It's, it's not your need for better health. Your greatest problem is inside of you. Your, your greatest problem is your rebellion against God. God, who is your master. Because he is your creator. But God's favor is so great. That he actually took on your problem. By taking on your flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ. The, the, the second person of the Trinity. God himself. He became man. And, and Jesus Christ lived not like you and I live. He lived as a faithful servant of the Lord. Not, not once rebelling against God, his father and his master. And then Jesus took that perfect life, that life of a faithful servant. And he gave his life on the cross as a suffering servant. In your place and for your stead, He offered himself as a sacrifice and a substitute, taking the punishment that is due rebellious servants. He died a criminal's death. And in doing so, he paid the penalty for your rebellion. He didn't just die. Three days later, he got up from the dead, So that now all who repent of the rebellion and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior will will, will not only be forgiven. but, But will will actually find that the God now, God, the spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself will come and take up residence in you, dwell in you and begin to remake you, reform you. So that you are not only a joyful servant of the Lord, but but actually adopt you into his family. More than a servant, a, a child of God. This is why I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that if you trust him, if you look to him for favor, he will not fail you. Because he has already proven it at the cost of his own son. If you are not a Christian and you're here this morning, this is what we ask you to trust in and believe. We're not asking you to take on a whole bunch of rules and regulations. We're not asking you to take on a whole set of assumptions about politics or culture that you think might attach to Christianity. We are asking you simply To trust in Jesus Christ, the faithful servant who suffered for you, the unfaithful servant. I'd love to talk to you more about that. You can find me afterwards. I'll be down here, down front, um, or maybe talk with the person that that you came with. But do not misunderstand the greatest favor that God has ever done for you. And that is to forgive you. Now, if you're a Christian, understand that if he has done this for you already. Will will, will he will he not continue now to to show you favor if he's done this much for you already? Will he not continue to to provide for you? Will he not continue to protect you as his beloved servants and children? Well, Well, of course He will. Why would somebody do all of that and then not do the lesser things, the easier things? Of course he will. So, why do we doubt? Why why do we doubt that God will really be there for us in this life when we need him? Well, I think you feel it in the psalm, right? We doubt because, because we have to wait. We're waiting, we're watching. We're waiting for some signal, some sign, some movement. And we keep waiting. We want all of our problems solved now. We we want all of our needs met immediately. But, but, But Christian, let me remind you. I know you know this already, but let me just remind you again. We are not the master. We are the servants. And we show our faith. In the Lord, by looking to Him with patience, with perseverance, until He shows us favor. You understand that having to wait is not a test of His favor, but of your faith. Our impatience doesn't call into question his identity as as the good and faithful master. No, it calls into question our identity as faithful servants. Servants don't snap their fingers and make demands, right? Servants don't begin to question the, the authority of their master or the goodness of their master because he is not keeping their timetable. Or working according to their schedule, even though my timetable is very reasonable and my schedule makes a lot of sense. And if God could just see that, no, that's not the way the servant master relationship works. Servants build their lives around their master. They schedule their lives around his timetable. They order their priorities according to his priorities. And then they wait. They, they wait on him because their protection and their provision will come from no one else. It is God's great glory to be our defender, to be our supply, to be our master, and to be seen To be our master, protecting and providing in every way that is needful on his timetable and on his schedule. John Calvin observed it cannot be doubted that God, when he sees us placing an exclusive dependence upon his protection and renouncing all confidence in our own resources, that that then God will, as our defender, encounter and shield us from all the molestation that shall be offered to us. God wants to be seen to be your defender. God wants to be seen to be your provider. And one of the, one of the ways that happens, maybe the way it happens most often, is when we wait for that protection patiently, trustingly. When we wait for that provision, without grumbling and without claim, without complaining, because you know the you know the person that he wants most of all to see that he is your protector and provider. It's you. He wants you to see it, and oftentimes we don't see it until he, in love, causes us to. Wait for it. As believers, we are God's servants. It's his favor that we look for. And so that's where we're going to turn next. Second, as God's servant, our pilgrim not only looks for God's favor, but he actually pleads for God's favor. Look at verses three and four. Show us favor, Lord. Show us favor, for we've had more than enough contempt. We've had more than enough scorn from the arrogant and contempt from the proud. All right. The second stanza begins where the first one ended with this request for favor. And now he repeats it twice more. So we get it actually repeated three times. Show us favor, linking the two stanzas together. There's clearly a sense of urgency here, even even desperation. Why? Why? Why is he desperate for the Lord's favor? Well, he tells us uh, there at the end of verse three, because we've had more than enough contempt. But then just like the first stanza, I- I- instead of finishing the thought by by getting us immediately to to kind of who his tormentors are and what the what the real problem is, that that idea of having had more than enough contempt, it's, it's repeated, it's it's prolonged, it's it's explored They're, they're not just. Waiting for God's favor while they're leisurely enjoying some pate and foie gras over a Sunday brunch. Maybe a, a friend is late showing up. Now they're waiting while they're actually the goose being stuffed and prepared to become that foie gras. That's, that's the image that's going on here. It's kind of hidden in the, in the English. Uh, it's a striking image. They are waiting on him for provision. That, that image of the servant waiting. You know, the master eats first, and then the signal comes from the master's hand, and they can go eat. They are waiting for their provision, for their daily bread. But in the meantime, that, that phrase, more than enough, it, it, it's, it's hard to translate. It's, it's They are being stuffed to the gills. That they are being engorged. They are being sated with shame and disregard. With contempt and scorn. They are being fed. But it's not a meal that they are enjoying. They're being treated really as less than a servant. They're being treated like dogs, they're being treated as, as less than a, a human being, and, and it's gotten a little more than just under their skin. Spurgeon observed that nothing is more wounding, embittering, festering than disdain. When our companions make little of us, we are far too apt to make little of ourselves. Oh, it's getting to them. Who's doing this to God's people? Well, we're told it's, it's the arrogant and the proud. Literally, those who are at ease in the world. Who have everything that they need. Those who are majestic in their, in their power and, and in their wealth. Now, we don't know when this particular... Psalm was written. The Psalms of Ascent were written at a whole bunch of different times and then collected later to be used as, as this liturgy uh, uh, that people would sing on their, on their way to Jerusalem. But the language of this psalm suggests that it may come from the experience of the Jews when they had returned from exile. The, the, the experience of, of Nehemiah and, and Ezra, where, where Nehemiah uh, tells us in Nehemiah 4 that, that men like Sam, Sanballat mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Maybe it was then that they felt this scorn and disdain heaped upon them. Whenever it was written, it was written to invite all of us, all of God's people in to that experience whenever and wherever we lived. Because friends, this is always the world's response to those who depend upon the Lord alone. The world admires strength. It loves winners. It's, it's this self-made man or woman that the world exalts. Now, now, I don't want you to misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with being successful. From a biblical perspective, the problem isn't success. It's pride in your success. Right, the, the arrogant man has forgotten that whatever he has actually was given to him because he is but a creature, not the creator. Perhaps I think this is one of the reasons that the world in its rebellion against God is so contemptuous of Christians. This is not a recent phenomenon, you know, it has always been this way. But it does seem to be particular today. Charles Taylor, who is a. Astute observer of modern culture, a a sociologist, he's noted the, the peculiar opposition of the modern world to Christianity. He notes that that Christianity, because of its theology, because of its values and commitments, Christianity threatens what he has called the order of mutual benefit in which the goal of all of human life is now self-improvement. The goal of life is, is to improve yourself and, and, and to give yourself to that project. Wasn't that the goal that Satan tempted Eve with? God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. self Improvement. The essence of sin is pride. And at the root of pride is independence. The desire to be like God, to stand alongside God as his peer, rather than to look up to God. Kneeling below him in dependence as his servant. Now, if Christianity is committed to a, a life of being servants, of being and displaying in our faith and in our piety and in our love and our good deeds in displaying in all of that and utter dependence upon God, is it any wonder that the independent despise the dependent? As we follow Christ, we... Call the world's bluff, and the world doesn't like that. Christian, I wonder, where are you looking for favor? Are you looking to the world? You know, the only way you win the world's favor is if you reject God's favor. Because God favors his servants. And the world does not favor servants. The world favors those who who join in in its own kind of self-flattery that that we are gods, or at least we could be if we tried just a little bit harder. Christian, make no mistake. As James tells us, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? The favor that we need is the favor that comes from God and God alone. The approval that we need is the approval that comes from God and God alone. The food that we need is the food that comes from God and God alone. Jesus said, blessed Favored are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In this psalm, Israel is waiting on God's favor. We know that he has now shown us that favor in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's promised us that the favor that we now know in Christ is just a foretaste of what's to come. Christian, if you are his servant, he is your master. Won't that be enough? Of course it will be enough. Because to be filled with God's favor, to be filled with God's righteousness, is to be filled with God. God himself, That's what this pilgrimage is all about. We are not heading to a a destination called heaven. No, we are headed to a person. To stand in his presence. To be filled with his joy. And so I conclude just by asking you. What are you hungry for? What is it that you're anticipating? that, that, That you're longing for? That when it comes, you will be able to say, oh, this, this is enough. Only the Lord can satisfy that hunger so that you never hunger again. So friends, look to him. Plead to him. Plead to him with what Calvin called the importunity of the famished. The world may sate you with scorn in the meantime, but the Lord, the Lord, the one who's enthroned on heaven, will satisfy you with his love and his favor forever. Would you pray with me? I'll take just a moment and maybe confess that thing that you have been looking to that is not God that you were hoping would satisfy you. Just confess that to him. Lord God, we do confess that so often we look everywhere but you for the satisfaction that we long for and and then, having not looked to you, we blame you for not being satisfied, or give us eyes to see Jesus, give us eyes to see Him in all of His beauty, all of His glory. Give us a taste for Him. That we might taste and see that the Lord is good, that we might know the everlasting satisfaction that comes from Jesus. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.